interested in your thoughts on climate change. It's a topic right. that we hear a lot about. And I, uh, as I may have mentioned to you, I feel like it it's becoming a little bit more political. Yeah. Um, and so I'm interested in your thoughts on what is climate change? Uh, what does it look like from your perspective? Right. It is a complex process. And, uh, you know, just by dissecting the phrase climate change, it is... Uh, you know, various forms of climate, which include, you know, rainfall, include, uh, you know, conditions during summer and winter, these are all drastically changing. And the change, it's not, you know, a sudden change that is, uh, it's it's like, you know, something that is coming in like a pulse. It's, it's being seen over a long period of time. So over an average of so many years that have gone by, we have consistently seen temperatures rising, which is an indicator of climate change. Um, so in a nutshell, the main um, sort of challenge that is coming from here is that the planet is warming. So as the planet is warming, it is not just causing you know hotter summers, but also as we saw, you know, rec record-breaking cold temperatures in winter. Um, so all of these are um, are are some you know effects that are being brought in by climate change, uh, but also you know flooding, um, more forest fires. All of these are natural calamities that have always been there in our planet's history, but they've just been exacerbated. Right. And so I think in perhaps normal circles, people who are not academics, who are not researching this daily, um, we discuss and kind of think about climate change in kind of like a smaller form way. Right. And perhaps it's more debated in the public forum than mm -hmm. it is in the perhaps scientific forum. Is climate change as a topic, is it debated? Uh, I know you went to MIT, you've been to several high prestigious universities. Is this something that gets debated whether or not it's actually occurring or not? Or do you feel like it is more settled within the universities? Well, so in the scientific community, it is um, incontrovertible that it is occurring. And also what is causing it is it's clear with the evidence that the level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is too high. There's um, continuous injection of these greenhouse gases into our atmosphere. So the scientific community, um, you know, very broadly agrees that this process is happening. Yes, there are, you know, natural forms uh, that, you know, weather systems are affected, but the word here is anthropogenic climate change. So man-made causes that are causing it. And uh, beyond the academic sphere, it's uh, it's great to see that you know citizens uh, around the world, everyone is taking this very seriously, and policymakers are also taking it very seriously based on what we've seen with the COP uh, conferences and different kinds of agreements that have started to come in. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it is always that interface between the science and the policy, and making sure that the you know policymakers understand. What is the gravity of the situation? Right. So when you're watching TV and you hear people debating whether or not climate change is occurring, from your perspective, what are your thoughts on that? What are you like? Is this frustrating where you're like, how are we debating this still? Like, how are you letting this person on? I know that uh, Tucker Carlson had Bill, <laughs> Bill Nye, the science guy yeah. on, and that clip went viral. Yeah. Um, and people were frustrated because you should have the there were arguments made you should have the overwhelming scientific majority yeah. um, in the room if you're yeah. going to debate it. It shouldn't be one-on-one. -on -one. Right, right. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would say that um, uh, for me, you know, just uh, being in this educational sphere, I understand that, you know, that a lot of times you have to convince uh, the harshest critics that something that you're pursuing is happening. And 
Um, and if you know you get over overburdened by frustration, then you know the conversation that should happen gets uh, gets diluted. So, so I would say that um, it is a sort of an art that everyone should be developing to convey the facts and then also convey what is the long-term prognosis of climate change in a very succinct way to to anyone who and anyone they could also include people who are skeptical. Um, but yeah, my thoughts there are that it just reinforces more the the need for this communication, the need for you know having a broader message. Absolutely. Can you tell us about where you think climate change is having, or where humans are having the largest impact in terms of climate change? Because I know that there are people who want to uh, like buy more green items, and from like a skeptical perspective, I think a lot of that's marketing. Um, you, like it's a, a hot topic, and so certain things you're buying, they put on the little green stem, or they put something on there to make you feel good as as a consumer, rather than it being a substantive solution to the problem. So where do you see those substantive problems? Yeah, so these are great steps. I would say that, you know, small steps like tracking your own carbon footprint and using alternatives that you feel are causing lesser impact uh, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. All of these are great, I feel. Um, but also it's an important awareness that where is the main challenge lying and it's, uh, you know, that transition to clean energy and divesting ourselves from, uh, from you know, energy cause, like energy generators that are uh, causing greenhouse gas emissions is very important. But also, you know, a realization that right now the levels of, of CO2 and greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are too high. And um, and and that realization is not yet something that can permeate into everyday life because you know we don't have uh, yeah we can plant trees we can you know maybe uh, learn more about what it takes to capture the CO two and take it out of the atmosphere but in day to day life it's 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 hard to have this permeating but the other steps that you mentioned you know sustainability initiatives that everyone's taking they're all part of the mix and they're all needed. Right. And so would you like I've heard it said that like you can try and get a green car um, and drive that for like a year. But then the second you take like a, an airplane anywhere that you've kind of like negatively impacted overall, um, where do you see the problem kind of standing out the most? Where like if we can find a way to like make planes that are more green, that that would have a giant impact? Where are those kind of bigger issues that we can start to have an impact on? Yeah, so so you could, you know, broadly divide this into grassroots, like everyday citizens, like what are the efforts they can take to, you know, to reduce their own carbon footprint? And as, and as you mentioned, you know, things like buying, um, you know, greener things, uh, you know, using electric vehicles, all of these are great initiatives. Uh, but then they're also, you know, as you mentioned, with flights where it is more of another enterprise or entity owning that and then citizens are using that. So they're in a way, uh, choices are limited right now for transportation. We have to use these fossil fuel powered planes. Um, but that's kind of where uh, this additional aspect of communication and knowledge comes in. And, and you know, just by having these conversations, uh, increasing the pressure on, you know, what technologies need to be changed and how quickly they need to happen. So there's that kind of indirect impact uh, yeah. that everyday citizens can have. Okay, interesting. So the problem seems to be uh, too much CO2 from your perspective. Mm -hmm. I've also heard about methane. Yes. How do they kind of get categorized 
uh, within the scientific community? Where do we, um, like how big is CO2 in comparison to like methane? Yeah, so that's a great question. So there is a term that's called greenhouse gas uh, potential. So essentially compared to CO2, how much are different gases contributing to greenhouse, uh, to climate change? And on a very fundamental level, it's the ability of the gas to absorb some of these uh, radiation that causes this heat. Um, now, CO2, as we all know, is a greenhouse gas, but uh, methane has a higher capacity to uh, to cause global warming. Uh, and then also there are these other gases which are uh, which are sort of you know also part of that mix that can have a higher potential. So nitrous oxide, for example, it's laughing gas. Its potential, I believe, is you know hundred times more than CO2. And then also another gas, um, I believe it's sulfur. It's a sulfur compound, which is you know ten thousand more. So if these are continuously emitted by different industrial sources, then they are also contributing to global warming. Wow, that is very interesting. And for methane, um, watching documentaries on Netflix, my understanding is that often comes from the waste in our food mm -hmm. that we yeah. like not eating. I think it's like an average we waste like a certain amount of food every year that's significant. And yeah. so each individual wasting, I think it's like thirty percent of like what we purchase from the grocery store yeah. ends up going right into a landfill yeah. um, is a huge problem because it doesn't break down naturally. Right. It's not in the forest where yeah. it's going to like biodegrade naturally. Yeah. It's it's all compounded into one specific area yeah. and then that gets concentrated and it has detrimental impacts uh, you know, on larger scales. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And methane, you would, uh, you, you know, methane is also natural gas, for example, has a lot of methane as well. And there are naturally occurring uh, sources of methane and natural gas that are always, always been there, always emitting. Uh, but also another source is the agriculture industry. So, um, you know, cows, when, when they belch, they emit a lot of methane. And and this is also now, you can see that even though it's a small amount from a cow belching, this amount is just so potent that it can cause a high degree of uh, global warming. And when you have like a ton of cows and each farm yeah. has a ton of cows, you're getting that higher concentration over time. And so it might not be just one cow. You have to look at the scale of how yeah. many cows perhaps in BC and how many times that's happening every day to kind of get a better understanding. Um, can we talk a little bit about CO2? Where does that often come from um, and where are the, the problem areas of CO2? Yeah, so for CO2, we could sort of categorize it into, you know, sources that we're familiar with, but then also these sort of uh, uh, dev devilish sources that people have not heard about, but they also contribute quite heavily. So I guess like in the in the former category, you could say, you know, transportation, um, heavy industries, all of these are, are big emitters of CO2 and, and energy generation. So a lot of places around the world still use coal for, for generating energy and electricity. Uh, when you burn coal, there's um, the CO2 that's emitted, and it's uh, because it's so ubiquitous, there's such a heavy amount. Uh, that's one of the main biggest emitters, in addition to transportation. But then there are these so-called, you know, fugitive emissions, which you know are are out there, and everyone should be aware. So some, you know, the concrete, the construction industry, to make concrete, you need a lot of CO2. Uh, I mean, you you generate a lot of CO2 in this process, and concrete is used everywhere. For buildings, because right now, you know, for buildings everywhere in the world, the standard has been concrete because of its ability to be strong and and make these structures. But there is a high degree of CO two that comes from that, um, and then also you know other sources like the agriculture industry, like we mentioned, and um, and many others, you know, similar sort of industrial activities that that cause these emissions. Right, and so. 
uh, on like a scale, most people would be aware of CO2 and methane because that's something that they would daily contribute to to a certain extent. And then you mentioned like nitrous oxide. Yes. And there's other ones, sulfur, that people would not be at the forefront of their mind. Yeah. Is there like a direction that you feel like uh, perhaps governments or um, societies are taking to angle more? I've heard way more about CO2 than I have about the others. And you said that the others could be even more detrimental. Right. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like there's a public campaign? to inform people about CO2 and perhaps um, uh, other aspects of it more specifically. And then there's an equal kind of platform to push it on industries right. where we might not hear about. Do you feel like there's a good balance between the two? Um, yeah, I would say that um, uh, in terms of, you know, dispensing the knowledge to the public, um, you know, there are different means that, you know, through um, uh, through briefings, through like what the government is going to be doing over the next four years in terms of their agenda. Um, but I would say that knowledge about these, you know, fugitive compounds that can also cause greenhouse, um, greenhouse, you know, our greenhouse gases that can cause global warming is, is limited. And, you know, it's important to be aware that these also have a high potential and where are they coming from? And, um, and, you know, uh, overall, you know, we have as, um, uh, uh, in the last, you know, many years always found alternatives. So when there was, you know, the ozone hole that had formed um, uh, just over at the Antarctic, I, I would say like 30 years ago, there was a concerted effort from all the governments to find where is it coming from? Where are those chlorofluorocarbons, um, uh, you know, causing this and what are the sources and then to replace them very quickly. And it happened. And now, you know, the ozone hole is relatively repaired and those compounds don't exist. So I would say that a similar strategy would also have to be followed in a very systematic way to find alternatives for whichever you know mechanisms uh, and industries that are using these other gases. Can you tell us more about that one? Because I think that it's such a good kind of case study for yeah. people to put it into their minds that there was a... There's a lot of like conspiracy theories yeah. around climate change and the motivations behind it. And I think that that's such a good test case to kind of have an, a healthy dialogue on right. it where you can go, there was this severe problem. Um, we, uh, My understanding was like mostly aerosol sprays. That's right. And also, you know, tran uh, transformers um, and also refrigerants, these, these things, you know, that... Uh, used quite a high concentration of these chlorofluorocarbons. Now there have been replacements, and these replacements are still doing the job. They're still, you know, causing cooling as refrigerants do. They're still being used, uh, you know, with sprays, as you mentioned, but they don't have the same impact with the ozone layer. And so can you tell us a little bit about the ozone layer and why it was, because it stood out to people that they could see the problem. Yeah. The problem with climate change is it's like a silent killer. You don't get to see it. You don't get to point at it in the same way. And people kind of try and point to natural disasters or issues within the environment as examples. But then you kind of have like uh, the perhaps more right-leaning side of the spectrum kind of go, well, that's been happening forever. And it's it's less potent where the ozone layer being withdrawing was very evident to, I think, anybody on the political spectrum. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I would say that evidence, uh, scientific evidence is also similarly very strong for the CO2, um, you know, that CO2 unquestionably is causing climate change and unquestionably the man-made emissions are. Um, and I feel there, uh, you know, I would say that, yes, there might be more that needs to be done to sort of like communicate that in a very reasonable way to say that this is something to be taken seriously and why is it causing 
So there are, you know, simple experiments on YouTube that, you know, people have been doing where they can fill, you know, one bottle with pure CO2, one bottle with air. And then if you have a heat lamp, and then if you have an infrared thermometer, you would see that the bottle that has CO2 is is, is getting heated faster than any other uh, gases that might be there. So so those, you know, are, uh, you know, seeing is believing is what uh, a lot of people say. So with that kind of experiment, it's incontrovertible that this gas is causing that. So I would say that that barrier between, you know, these evidence and these experiments and then communicating that in a succinct way is something that uh, that can be enhanced around the world. Do you think that it's been limited at all? I feel like certain topics within the scientific community, it's like, I've heard it said like, well, this is settled science. And I think that that cuts, uh, I had Karen Bondar on, who's a biologist. Okay, uh, She's a very good science communicator. She's been on Netflix. She's been on National Geographic, different shows to break down what is the scientific method right. and how, what does that look like. And so the scientific method usually invites questions. It invites right. to be challenged. And so do you think there's any challenge at all with uh, individuals saying, this is settled silence, like you don't need to ask any more questions because it is important to kind of show that. Do you think that that's um, made this issue perhaps more political than it needed to be had we had? the scientific community come out, break this down for everybody, show 15 different examples, and then kind of put it to rest? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I would say that science is always evolving, and I don't think um, ever I believe that something is settled. There's always scope to keep discovering more. And and then, you know, the more you learn about the problem, the more you can brainstorm solutions. So I feel that that's constantly an evolutionary process and science is evolving. Uh, but uh, But communicating those findings and finding, you know, stressing on where the main challenge is coming from. And in this case, if we're saying it's the existing CO2, existing greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere, uh, then, you know, we start to think, what do we do to address this? As obviously the transition to clean energy systems, but then also reducing these CO2 levels is getting more and more prominent. Uh, but uh, but I would say, again, to answer your question, that it's very important to continue evolving science, having uh, new findings, and as and when they're released, then being able to openly share it through through different platforms that are not just scientific publications. Those publications are great for the scientific community. A lot of times they're not available to the to you know to the to the public domain. Uh, so that's where you know sharing some of these findings. Um, and and you know in our group, for example, we believe a lot in visualizing things. So using color as an example to show that there's nuances in addition to the chemical data, because that's kind of where people see that things are happening. So so I would say that that should be also an area where uh, where you know that communication can be enhanced. Right. I'm I'm interested to know how much humans are perhaps impacting climate change. How much are we contributing to these problems? Perhaps on like a on a global scale. What does it look like in terms of the increase? Because we had the industrial revolution and it looks right. like things have just shot up from there. What does that look like when you're looking at the research? Yeah. And, you know, there's an interesting graph that I'd found um, that, um, you know, a good friend of mine had shared recently where it's, uh, if you see the increase in CO2 emissions over the last 150 years, and also the increase in the global GDP per capita, the shape of the curves almost exactly align, which shows that there is a one-on-one correlation between industrialization and growth and CO2 levels there. 
Um, but yeah, the the um, uh, the sources that I mentioned to you have been adding this extra CO two beyond what the nature does, but also nature has built in systems to sequester and take out the CO two, and uh, they have not been able to keep up with this sheer amount that's been coming. And nature operates very magically, but it takes time. It's not a quick process. So even with reducing these levels, um, in a lot of ways, we flooded nature by adding the CO2. So yes, man-made emissions, uh, you know, it's called anthropogenic emissions as the, as the terminology has been contributing to climate change. Very interesting. And so I really appreciate that you acknowledge uh, the influence nature can have, because I think that that's something that perhaps past scientists or individuals from history did not recognize the influence or the power of nature. Like at one point in time, doctors thought the appendix was useless. <laughs> and now we kind of understand that the appendix does have a use. And, yeah. um, there is a place for it. But there was a certain, I guess, historic arrogance of like the scientists scientists and believing that humans were smarter than nature and that mm. we could kind of understand it and not need the influence of nature. So you acknowledging that just reminds me of my interview with um, elder Eddie Gardner, who's mm -hmm. very connected to nature. He calls um, trees the, the rooted ones rather yes. than just trees. Um, he talks about bugs as the ones that crawl rather yes. than bugs because you kind of get this like, oh, they're bugs, get it off me yeah, kind yeah. of attitude. So he has like that, that true appreciation for nature and uh, the symbiotic relationship yeah. that we need to have. Can you tell us about what contributes to controlling um, the CO2 levels? Like, uh, I think it's trees, coral reefs. Yeah. Can you tell us about how that functions? Yeah, and, and I very much agree that we, you know, are in sync with nature. We are, um, you know, living together. So that symbiotic relationship is very important. And that's why I would say that actually, you know, scientists um, in, you know, that area of science where they understand natural systems and uh, flora and fauna have, uh, you know, have, have, have had that uh, sort of dedication to, to show that um, this is how, you know, nature processes things. This is how we can harness it. Um, but yeah, you know, there, there have been some incidents, as you mentioned, where there, there might be that, uh, uh, that overlooking of what nature can do. So for sequestration, one you know the, the the example most people are familiar with is trees and and uh, uh, flora, and their ability to uh, capture CO two from the photosynthetic process, and that is a uh, major carbon sink around the world. So the Amazonian forests, the forests here in Canada, everywhere forests are just a magical um, uh, source with which we can extract the CO two from the atmosphere. Uh, but in addition to that, there's also oceans. So oceans have a this uh, algae that's called phytoplankton that has been for years uh, been the carbon sink uh, throughout the oceanic area around the planet. So uh, you know a large majority of the planet is covered by water over land, and in those systems there are these phytoplankton, which are these tiny algae. Uh, have efficiently developed a process to photosynthetically capture the CO2 and then sequester it within themselves as a, as a source. And then this is where the food cycle starts from. So they store it as energy and then, you know, other marine animals and rely on that. And then that keeps going. 
but also the soil. So, you know, you mentioned about trees. Um, so the trees, when they have the, the roots of the trees, there's, um, there's these amazing fungi that are uh, underground and they form these underground networks. So a lot of times when the CO2 is captured by the tree, it goes into these fungi networks and then it's sequestered there. So it's sequestered in the form of sugars and the form of energy. And um, so all of these systems are quite amazing and they work together to control the carbon balance. That's so interesting. And I think it gives us a greater appreciation for the environment we live in in Canada because yeah. it is so green. I've heard it commented on um, by certain individuals that this is the greenest time we've ever lived in. Uh, there's more greenery than has ever existed before, partly as a consequence of the increase in CO2 because they rely on it. And so it's more of a hospitable environment mm -hmm. for them. Uh, do you have any comments on that? I know that people have tried to use that as an example of like, well, nature is going to fix it or something like that. So what are your thoughts on the increase in greenery that we're seeing? No, absolutely. And that's important. And, you know, planting trees and, you know, um, uh, starting from, you know, around your own garden, like having uh, seeds for trees that, uh, can provide so many benefits in addition to CO2 capturing is, is quite important and they play a role. Uh, but uh, as I mentioned, it's about the sluggishness of the process. So nature is very efficient, but then it also needs its time. So uh, in order for it to, let's say, you know, reduce these CO2 levels, whatever the level we're at now to, let's say, pre-industrial levels, then you could think that, yes, you would need more of these trees, but then it's it's complicated because the nature system is very intricately linked together. All of the land, water, and soil, they all have interconnected pathways. So it's very important to see the impact of, you know, planting many, many trees on what's going to happen with the ecosystems there. Um, but in general, nature is very resilient. And, and I feel that, um, that that effort, in my opinion, shouldn't stop to continue planting trees. Right. So when you see something like Tentree, which is a company that you, like I'm wearing a Tentree uh, sweater right now, and I think they plant like 10 trees for every item you buy or beyond a certain amount. Like if you have spent $30, they plant 10 trees. Uh, do you think that that's moving in the right direction, that we should have more sort of social enterprises offering those types of resources and making sure that when industries um, like cut down a bunch of trees for development. We're obviously in a in a province where we use our lumber and we take it and we sell it to the United States or other countries that they should be required to make sure that they replant those trees and that we should increase the amount of greenery. I feel that that's an encouraging initiative and it's important because, uh, you know, if we have taken the trees away from a certain ecosystem, then it makes sense for me that we restore them back. But it should be done in accordance with a holistic picture of what what's causing, uh, you know, climate change and what are the impacts of, you know, replanting trees. So I would say, for example, the Amazon rainforest, um, you might have heard two years ago they were severely burning. Um, and the cause of the burning is still unknown, but you know there's a high likelihood that it could have been caused by a man-made fire that propagated. So, so in that ecosystem, there, if you know scientific studies are showing that replanting trees can restore some of these deforested areas, then it makes sense for me that we put our efforts there in restoring what has been lost. And then let's say theoretically we restore all of the forests to whatever state they were. And after that, we should see that where else could we use this land to replant more trees in accordance with what scientific studies are showing. Right. I think that, that I'm interested in your thoughts on the Amazon because that seemed like another case where 
it took longer, I guess, than expected for governments to kind of get involved. You saw the ozone layer response. It was, it seemed quick and strong. And with the Amazon, I think that there's, their government didn't seem interested in working with other governments because I guess the citizens from there are tearing tearing down the rainforest so they can succeed financially. They're, I think they're tearing it down for like soybean farms or something like that um, to succeed. Go yeah, ahead. so I'm, I'm uh, you know, I feel that uh, there are factors that have caused to the deforestation. And um, um, I do find it saddening that, uh, that, that this, this, you know, lung of the planet in a way has been, um, has been reducing an area. And, uh, and, you know, the authority to restore this is a uh, starts from the jurisdiction where they are. And uh, I feel that there's been a lot of movements there, starting from, you know, everyday citizens, from students to, to bring this issue up to policymakers and make sure that they understand. But we do have barriers. Uh, it's, it's, and, and, and it is, you know, uh, it is, it's important to, you know, keep putting that voice there and making sure that the gravity of the problem is understood. And, and there are complexities. Every country is different. Every country's governing system is different. So, um, so, so that's, that's very important that, that, you know, that awareness starts from the very beginning. Mm -hmm.